BTB listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's episode. Listen, if this episode inspires you, do me a favor. Take five seconds to shoot me a like and subscribe to the podcast. There are several more exciting guests that are in the pipeline, and I just can't thank you enough for your continued support, and let's keep paying the mission forward. In today's episode, I interview Andy Zerker. He was a dual sport athlete winning state championships in Colorado in both basketball and tennis. He was a walk-on at Notre Dame and played on the ATP Tour as a professional tennis player. All of that is not the legacy that he wants to leave. It's the legacy that he's currently leaving for his children as a husband, as a father, being present in his family, enjoying those moments. And that really resonated with me throughout the conversation all of the lessons we can learn through athletics and how we can pay it forward to help others. Welcome to the BTB Project, designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt, a former athlete and motivational coach I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a sore high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living all my dreams if I'm waking up in a foreign land. It is a humbling moment for me here on the BTB Project to have the Mount Rushmore of tennis in Parker, Colorado, a hometown where I was able to spend the first 17, 18 years of my life. And before we hopped on, I just remember walking into the high school and seeing this championship banner for tennis. And I had no idea, you know, who was tied to it and how it happened. And long of the story is, is I end up coming across a mentor of mine that had a 50th birthday recently. And all of a sudden there's an open seat and I sit down and I get to sit next to today's guest and who I would consider one of the most prolific Colorado tennis players and an opportunity to have a conversation about life and the mission that he's paying forward. Mr. Andy Zerker, welcome to the BTB project. You're too kind, Goldman. Thank you very much. And the pleasure was mine as, as we got to know each other a little bit. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to speak with you today. Absolutely. And I just know that the Colorado tennis community is very small. There's not a lot of, in my opinion, players that go on and let alone play collegiately to playing on the tour. And here you are checking a lot of those boxes. So I think what would be really neat for the listeners is give some perspective on really how you came across tennis, because I don't know if you were more concerned about trying to work on your, your crossover dribble in basketball or pick up a tennis ball to, to hone in your serve. So maybe take us all the way back to the moment you came across tennis for the first time. Gosh. That's a trip down memory lane now that I'm, I'm an old book guy. But my parents sort of introduced us to the game, and, and I have an older brother, two years older, and a younger sister, two years younger. So we started playing, I think at the age of five, I had my first sort of tennis lesson, and we started, you know, banging the ball back and forth. And I say banging the ball, I'd probably like bunting the ball or, or trying to make contact. My parents weren't sort of hardcore tennis players growing up, 
my dad was the athletic director at the Denver Athletic Club at the time. And so he was sort of an athlete. And so sports were always a key part of, of what we were doing. We joined the Pinery Tennis Club out in Parker, as you know, a Pinery Country Club, and played tennis there. Ultimately, I enjoyed tennis, but I didn't love it. And it's funny that you mentioned the crossover dribble because I, I was far more passionate about basketball. I really loved soccer in the day. Never, never had an opportunity to play football. My parents were sort of like, no, we're not going to do that. I sort of accidentally fell into having some success early in tennis. And the first tournament that I played, I was eight years old. And I think my brother was 10 and, and either got to the finals or the 10 and unders at Lindwater yeah, Racket Club Spring, in right. Spring. Yep. I think not long after that, I ended up having some success kind of early. And I think I won, I won the Inner Mountain as a 10-year-old. So it's like, oh, this is kind of fun. I wasn't sure that the fun was all about tennis or more for, as a 10-year-old, kind of the fun was, was winning and, and, and that was you know, sort of exciting. And, and ultimately, I stuck with it because my brother and I would just play all the time and we weren't necessarily the best competitors. Maybe we were the most intense competitors. There were oftentimes rackets thrown across the net at each other, those types of things. But at the end of the day, we just sort of worked at it. I never had a private lesson. I grew up before Team Colorado was a thing. Yep. I think Team Colorado came about probably when I was in maybe high school and then started doing some of those types of things. Uh, you know, I just played a lot and I loved the competition mm. of tennis, but I didn't necessarily love the sport of tennis until I got to college. And then all of a sudden it's a team game. And I, I realized, you know, as a, as a junior, maybe in, in high school, that it's probably time to focus on tennis. And I had decided to maybe not play basketball that year. And we had a new coach. We had a good returning team. We had lost, I think, in the quarterfinals of state the year prior. And I had played on, on varsity as, as a sophomore. And I'll never forget my dad putting no pressure on me at all, but said, you know, you might regret not playing basketball. So do what you want, but, but you know, you at least give it some consideration. And that sort of opened the door for me to think about, is this, is, in the big picture, would this be something that would maybe be more, more fun and, and an opportunity that doesn't come around all the time? And so I did play and, and we did, we won state that year and, and I, was just, I was a point guard on that team. And it's one of my, my favorite memories that I'll ever have. Now, did it cost me probably some focus on tennis and opportunity for scholarship and things like that? Yeah, it probably did, but I wouldn't trade it for all the money in the world. Like that was just awesome to have that type of an experience. And, and the team dynamic was, was so much fun for me. And so then when I was able to experience that at the University of Notre Dame as, as being part of a team, it, it couldn't have been any better or more fun. And then you had sort of the, the best of the competitiveness and the individual nature of, of tennis where you're out there on your own and there's so many amazing character building lessons and, and life lessons that are presented on, on, on the court and, and in the striving to, to be a, a great player. Um, but alongside teammates and, and all of a sudden you might be losing a match, but you can hang in there and, and try and break back one time because that might help your, your, your teammate who's on the next court, who's in a, in a deep third set or something. And so you just, you know, all of those kind of dynamics got so much fun for me that, I really started putting a bunch of time and, and focus into tennis as I, as I finished my senior year in high school and, and then got a lot better in college and, and ended up having some success in college. Hearing you walk through that because 
you know, I've, I've experienced kind of in two ways. One is as a tennis player myself, I started tennis very late in my career. I was 14 years old when I really started taking it serious. But as I finished my high school career, played in college and eventually became a coach, I had coached a lot of dual sport athletes and really embraced it. And one of the athletes that I got to work with when I was at Regis Jesuit was Fran Belibi, who ended up playing college basketball at Stanford. And her main sport was tennis. So I thought it was really neat. You decided to take on that season, be able to, to, to lift the trophy with, with your team. And, and the team dynamic of basketball, it's really hard to, to grasp in tennis, whether it's, you know, singles or doubles and having the positions that you have, it's, it's very hard to create a team environment as a coach. So I'm glad you eventually got to experience that in college with juniors. I find it interesting because you didn't have a team Colorado. You're at the Pinery Country Club where I got to teach ironically for six, seven years. Yeah. I got to teach the moms of the kids that I grew up with, which was rather interesting, but nonetheless, you know, developmentally, you talked about your brother. I I would love for you to share what allowed you to hone in that competitive spirit, because it seems like you were just an athletic junkie in general and tennis was something that maybe came easy to you. And I just would love for you to speak to what ignited your competitive spirit. It's a really good question, Colvin, and, and I, I don't know if that's nature or nurture, you know, kind of thing. If I just sort of was was born being being a, a competitor, whether that's me being the middle child and 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 birth order, probably all, all of those things probably play into some of this. Uh, I was always a, a pretty good competitor, maybe more so than I was certainly skilled on the tennis court with. I didn't have the best strokes, and and my college teammates still give me a hard time for hitting a slice forehand. I would do that from time to time. And, and literally, you know, I did a slice forehand from the backcourt and just run forward. I was more comfortable playing up in the court and, and volley all the time. I was a non-traditional tennis player, but I was a pretty traditional competitor. And, and I worked crazy hard, you know, in, in practice and, and during matches and things to sort of figure it out. And, and so I honestly don't know what's the source of that competitive nature, it probably was fueled, no doubt, by my brother and I competing all the time, you know, in sports. And, and you know, we used to play a, a Saturday morning tackle football game for, gosh, years and years when we were in elementary school. And it was a couple of dads that would run plays. And they were pretty intense, you know, sort of games. And, and so everything that we always did, it, it never got, it was the positive nature of competition, you know, and you so you wanted to win and, but there was never a line crossed and there was clear understanding of you play by the rules and, and you sort of do the right things, but it's okay to get out there and, and work really hard to win. And I look back on all of those things and I honestly don't think about this until you pose that question, but probably all of that stuff contributes to just the nature that, that I had and, and sort of maybe, maybe fueled through the the years of growing up yeah and you know it's thinking of those football games i i mean growing up in parker myself in the pinery i remember 
going to one of the parks there near like Mountain View Elementary and playing those same yep. games. My brother was four By years older than me. Graduating class from Mountain View Elementary. That's a small world. I mean, that whole, you know, dynamic there in Parker with, you know, Mountain View to Northeast to then I did Parker Vista and then eventually to Ponderosa. It yeah. was just really fascinating that same trip. Growing, growing up in that area and kind of experiencing that same competitive spirit myself, having an older brother that beat me in every sport you could possibly imagine. And he gave me that tough love of making sure that he was the senior and I was the freshman. And what was fascinating was the only sport that I could finally beat him in was when I tried out for the high school tennis team my freshman year. And I beat him out for the last spot on the team to make the team. And my brother quit tennis and I never heard the end of it. But I believe even in that moment, even though it was stressful and I got duct taped to a flagpole afterwards, it actually was a positive experience because that tough love, you know, fast forwarding to my, my junior year in college, I'm playing at the University of Northern Colorado. And at this point, my brother, hadn't ever watched me play a college tennis match. And he went down to the Air Force Academy and watched me play. And I remember looking up in the stands and I'm, it was this full circle moment to kind of embrace that. And it makes me think with you, with the relationship that you had with your siblings, I mean, is that something that carried on into when you were playing basketball or playing tennis? Wow. You, you're tapping into some things here. Cool. Just foundational moments in my life. And one of them has to do with what we were just talking about. My sophomore year, and, and at that time, Ponderosa was just three years of high school. So freshman year was at, at Parker Junior High, which I think is now Parker Vista. And so so I showed up as a sophomore and I, I played on the JV basketball team. And I don't know, somewhere through the season, they started asking me to dress and sit on the bench of the varsity games. And we were maybe ranked top three or four and, and had a game up in Broomfield. And I think Broomfield might've been number one or we were number one or they were two or three, but it was, you know, one of those games. And my brother was the starting point guard at the time. Wow. And we're playing really poorly. And a coach finally just sort of gets fed up and he, and he looks down the bench and he's like, you're it. And I'm looking the other way, like, who are you pointing to? And he calls me to go in the game. And I got lucky that game, had one of those, you know, or a couple of rebounds bounced my way and, and had a lucky steal that sort of came my way and made a layup and, and ended up having a good game. We lost the game. And the next week, I'm the starting point guard taking my brother's place. And, you know, holy cow, that's, that's a pretty big thing from his perspective. Of course, I'm this sophomore, I'm probably 15 years old and, yeah. and think that I'm all that or whatever. And he was remarkably supportive and some of the other seniors were not quite as supportive of a sophomore kind of getting time but he was wildly supportive in the, the district championship game that we needed to win to get to state call it two weeks later play a really poor first half and i'm throwing the ball all over the place and and i'm kind of feeling like i'm single-handedly losing the game for us even though we're better than this team as we go into the locker room my brother stops let me get emotional here and just says, hey, but you're the best guy out here. You got it. You're doing fine. Gives me this encouraging kind of speech wow. as I'm sitting there just about to like crater into myself. 
And we go out there and, and the coaches are like, all right, we're going to stop, you know, running our press break. Just get the ball to Andy and let him break the press. Because I was probably, I don't know, 5'5 five, five at the time and 125 pounds or something. But I was quick. And so I would just get the ball and, and dribble through the press and then, you know, hit people for layups, fill in the lanes. And we ended up kind of running away with the second half. And by no means is that a, a tribute to anything that I did. I, I attribute entirely that success to my brother being the bigger guy. And, and that's easy to say when we're older now and, and we're parents and, and we have kids. But my brother was probably 18 at the time and incredibly supportive of his, you know, call it 16-year-old brother or something. That's pretty special and pretty unique that we had that. He just paves the way and shows me how to be uh, a, a great father, how to be a great friend, how to be a great person. And I'm lucky to, to have him in my life. You asked the question about sort of my family. My poor sister got dragged to a million tennis matches and basketball games and things. And, and she's always awesome. She was a great gymnast in, in her own time. And, and she also was a great tennis player and played at Ponderosa. But my parents were wildly supportive and, and just every once in a while I'd show up. I'll never forget them. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin for the, the Midwest Regional Tournament. And I look up in the bleachers. Maybe it was actually a dual match. And there's my dad. Didn't let me know that he's coming, but just sh shows up wow. for one match. Never, ever felt like I didn't have support uh, for my family. And, and beyond just support, kind of the right kind of support and, and, and the right perspective and the right understanding that playing to win is important. Yeah. Playing to win the right way is more important. So yeah, I was incredibly blessed with the family that I, that I have. Yeah. I think that is just, it's, it's a powerful testament to how important it is to have support in any endeavor, whether it's a team sport or an individual sport. And, you know, it's amazing at the time that we're recording this, Andy, I don't know if you knew this, but Ponderosa just celebrated its 40th year anniversary. And they had an alumni event and I unfortunately wasn't able to attend. One thing that kind of resonates with me, Andy, about that demographic and about that school is always was very community oriented. And it had that small town vibe to where everybody kind of seemed like they had each other's back. And when I was playing tennis there and not nearly having the type of success like you had, but, you know, just playing tennis there. I always, I always felt supported. So I just would love for you to maybe walk back to that moment to state championship Ponderosa. Do you remember the match that allowed you to lift the trophy? And can you speak to the community of support that was around you in that moment? Yeah. Gosh, you're, you're bringing me back hundred uh, percent. What you described was problem amplified even more years earlier when I, when I was a student there. I moved out to, to Parker in 1976, and there was nothing out there. Lincoln Avenue was a dirt road, you know, one lane each way kind of a thing. And, and so Ponderosa was this sort of blend of families that were, they was very much a small town. And you went to elementary school with most of your classmates, and you went to junior high with almost all of your classmates. And then you went to high school with those classmates. And so there were essentially three elementary schools that fed into the junior high school. And the junior high was the only school that fed into our high school. And so ponder, so you, you knew everyone incredibly well. And, and when we have, you know, reunions, 
you're going back to not just high school reunions, for most of the people there, you're going back to 10 years worth of education together that you spent. And mm. and that's pretty unique and pretty special. The support and and the, you know, the, the entire community would be at the basketball games. And and you know, when we won state, you'll never forget there there was an old pizza hut kind of in the middle of it. And so the whole town went to Pizza Hut to celebrate afterwards. Oh, the, sal the, the salad bar afterwards. and the pan pizza, I mean, you could never beat that back. Yes. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but you asked about the, the tennis. My junior year, when I won state in Grand Junction, Colorado, said probably same right at there, Mesa, the courts, right? At, yeah, Mesa. Tara Mesa, right? Yeah. Um, they played differently then. You played three matches that first day. And so I think it was Friday. And yeah, I played Scott Jones from Pueblo in the first match. I played Ivan Brown from Manuel in the second match. He went on to play at Army, was a great player. And his dad was the coach, Ira Brown. And they're awesome. And then I played Peter Spiska from Cherry Creek in the semifinals. So it's a long day because those are all really good players. They ended up beating, I think, Ivan in three sets in the semifinals. And I beat Spiska, maybe two one-break sets, maybe 6-4, six, 6-4. Four, six, four. And then I played Timur Dogan in the final, who went on to play at University of Colorado and, and had played at uh, Thomas Jefferson. And he was probably a better player than I was and definitely was expected to win. Two things that are interesting about that. Number one is my family was there watching the, the tournament, but my dad had to leave on Saturday because he was in the Naval Reserves and had to get to Colorado Springs for his Naval Reserve duty. So how many parents these days would leave when their son is in the state championship match the next day? And he, you know, drives the car to Springs where he had to fulfill his obligation as a Naval Reserve officer uh, at, down at NORAD. Interestingly, that would happen to also be fall break for my brother, who's in his freshman year. He went to school at, in, in Pennsylvania at Swarthmore College. And, and so he flies in and he shows up on Friday night to be there to watch, you know, the final. And my dad had just left and my mom, of course, was there the glue to it all through the whole thing. And I think my sister was there as well. I played Timber Dogan and I, I think I'm, it's a good match. I think I ended up winning maybe seven, five, seven, five or six, four, seven, five. And, and I will never forget one particular point. And this is weird because this is gosh, 35 years ago, maybe I hit a bad lob, a short lob, and he kind of fences an overhead, but he doesn't hit it hard enough and it goes back. And so I'm running back. And I jump up kind of against the fence and hit an overhead back at him. Luckily, sort of barely clears the net and, and he then pops up a volley. I come sprinting in from the fence and end up winning the point. Oh, and people there watching went ballistic. And one of those moments that you could have never scripted a point like that. But it was the point because it ended up kind of breaking Timmer's will a little bit. And I ended up winning the match a couple games later. He was up maybe 5-3 in the third when that happened. And I ended up winning 5-3 in the second. I think I ended up winning 7-5. I remembered some crazy details about that stuff like most of us old athletes do. <laughs> now, I've had an unbelievable privilege through the podcast to have very similar stories from Ponderosa alums share their journey one of which was a gal by the name of claire cox who was a number two single state champion of ponderosa she played awesome. for lisa d'amico who is the mother of Callan d'amico 
And yep. Kellen, despite only being at Ponderosa for one semester, he shared his story on the podcast of winning Junior Wimbledon with his partner, Nate Schnug, and his yeah. your career. But Claire's story was really fascinating because, like you, she was not anticipated to win a state championship. And she actually goes out in the final match and loses the first set 6-0. And she wow. was someone that I came across because I got to work with her at the Pinery. And so she had worked with me for five, six years, and we put a go win state mission six months before the season started to really put in the work to get her prepared for that. But she goes out and gets bageled the first set, and everybody thought that she was going to lose. And just the the mental resilience of her, she was very methodical, Andy. So when you're talking about being unconventional with a slice, it might be deemed as unconventional, but it was methodical in your mind because you saw how it could be effective. And she was very yeah. similar, very unorthodox. And she comes back and, and wins in three sets over Mountain Vista. But when it comes to those state championships at Ponderosa, there weren't many of them. And I know I started out the podcast saying Mount Rushmore of Parker Tennis. You, you got to be on the top, man. And I'm just curious knowing what you did 35 years ago, what does that state title mean to you today with how you're parenting your own kids or when you're involved in athletics in any sort of capacity, knowing that you're a state champion in tennis, what does that mean to you in, in today's day and age? Yeah. You know, Colin, honestly, not that much. The, and I don't say that to, to uh, reduce that accomplishment. But as I've gotten older, I, I'd like to believe a pretty balanced perspective on what's important you know, in life. And it's incredibly important to, to strive to have successes and to win. It's not just the person who ends up standing on top of, of the mountain at the end of the tournament that is afforded all of those opportunities. It's every single player who has played that tournament is presented this amazing opportunity to experience character building opportunities and, and life lessons within the, the trials of, of what you're doing. And so it's critical that you're striving to win because in that effort to win, all the good stuff is, is surface and, and mm -hmm. the challenge and the need to be resilient and, and the need to work hard and, and the need to avoid the temptation to take a shortcut. I mean, there's just so much richness in the kind of athletic experience. I was lucky enough to have some success, but as I've, as I've kind of gone through my career, I'm, I look back and I'm more appreciative of the sport of, of tennis, maybe specifically as, as being so amazingly formative in forming people with the right values and the right mindset. And, and it's pretty unique in, in today's day and age of youth sports that I think sometimes get a little bit overly maybe focused. You mentioned dual sport athletes. They're a rarity anymore, which is too bad. It's the, the lessons that are afforded. I'll go back to this, the sport of tennis. Um, you're out there alone yeah. and, and you don't have, you know, a coach there necessarily. You don't have a teammate to lean on. And there's a kid on the other side who just gave you a really bad line call. Yeah. And at the time, that's just traumatic. How do you deal with that? But that's kind of the point. How do you deal with that? Because you're going to experience things in life that are similar, where you feel like you've gotten the short end of the stick uh, on something. And, and you've had to navigate through 
the intellectually, how am I going to respond to this situation? And then you're going to have to respond athletically. And then you're going to have to go back after that match and prepare for the next match, et cetera. And so there's so much richness in that sport and in the sport of tennis, in all of athletics, don't get me wrong, but tennis uniquely in that it's an individual sport and, and there's really no one to look at, but the mirror as to whether you're being successful or not. And yes, you can have coaches and you can have support and family members and everything else. But in the heat of the battle, when you're out there on the court, how are you going to respond to whatever it was that just happened? That could be the highest of highs or the lowest of lows. You got to then walk back, pick up the ball and get ready to serve or return that next point. And that's just an amazing metaphor for life. How do we all get through every day? Being able to, I mean, athletics and you know, accomplishments are fine and dandy, but yeah, I mean, give me, give me the, the guy that faces adversity or the gal that faces adversity, learns that adversity and athletics can apply it to their life, learn to overcome and more importantly, learn how to pay it forward. And I appreciate yeah. you being able to provide a bigger perspective because that's really the, the mission of the project is there's a lot of really neat stories out there. And I do want to talk about your your college career because there's a lot of nuggets there too that's going to resonate with the listeners too. In CAA, you guys make this this crazy run. You're at the University of Notre Dame. You're a walk on, which I love. You just strike me as someone, Andy, that you just you probably weren't intimidated all that much. I feel like you just kind of showed up to these places and just said, okay, give me a raptor, give me a, give me a basketball and, and let's get to work. Right. And, you know, I, I look at some of the, the stories that I've heard about this run that I want you to, to walk us through, but I had a chance to have uh, Dick Gould on the podcast, the former coach from Stanford. And wow. I'm just curious, was he on the other side of the net when you were not in Stanford back in the day? He was. He ended our run in the finals. Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. But that that ninety NCAAs. I'd love for you to to talk about, you know, that moment, that journey with not only your journey, but now you're part of a team. What did it mean for you to compete for for Notre Dame and, and do what you guys did? You too. Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty special year. That that as you look back, it's you you realize how unique it, it was. My freshman year, the the best player in the country who was going to college was a guy by the name of David Delucio from uh, Pennsylvania, and he decided to go to Notre Dame, which was crazy because he was playing with. It would have been Sampras, it would have been Courier, it would have been Agassi, Chang, those. All of those guys just went to the pros and, and he decides to go to school and he comes to Notre Dame and the next, so then the next year I'm looking at schools and I'm, as I, as you mentioned, I was a walk-on, I was recruited, but not heavily and, and wasn't offered a scholarship there. And so my choice to go to Notre Dame was I needed to take an ROTC, a Naval ROTC scholarship so that we could afford you know, school. I ended up leaving ROTC after one year and, and worked my way into a scholarship at Notre Dame after that first year. But after Dave came, all of a sudden, a bunch of really good players wanted to come. And that bummed me out because I'm like, oh, no, I'm never going to get to play if all these other good players you know, show up. We end up with about six people in my class that end up going through 
four years together. And so Dave and then the rest of the lineup was all juniors. Wow. He was a senior at this point and, and was ranked number one. He was 25 and 0 in dual matches that year. In fact, the only match he lost to Alex O'Brien in the finals of the NCAAs. Uh, Alex won singles, doubles, and the team competition that week. And so Dave played one, I played two, three, four, five, and six were all um, my classmates. And then one of our doubles players was also in my class who would come in and, and just play doubles. And so we had, the year before, we had made the NCAAs for the first time in a long time. We won our first round against Kansas in the round of 16 and then lost to Southern Cal in the semifinal or in the quarterfinals. And, and we got, I think we lost 5-0. I won a set in my match at number five singles, but that was it. And we just basically, they just kind of wiped the, the court with us. Mm. Come back another year, we've now had a little more success and, and come into the tournament, I think ranked maybe 10. And so we played Mississippi State in the first round. They were all foreign players, almost all from France and, and very talented. Probably didn't have the same level of kind of appreciation for what the NCAAs meant to all of us and, and didn't have the same level of kind of commitment and, and probably team as we did, which I, I would make that statement about any team in the country because we had played three years together. Mm-hmm. So we beat them in, in, the, in the first round. And then we played Georgia at Georgia in Athens, which was the coolest venue you could ever imagine. I want to say we, we end up after the singles, we're up four, two and our number one, our number three player who played number one doubles with David DeLucia pulled his hamstring in his singles match. And so he couldn't play doubles. So we lose our number one doubles. We put in a, 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 our eighth guy who played number one doubles against a good team where Aiden McGuire was, was on that team. And so we lose at one and we're losing at three and my partner and I are playing two doubles. And so pretty quickly it's four all and we're in the midst of the match. And there's probably, I don't know, probably 5,000 people in the, in the stand, the big bleachers, as cool of an environment as you could have. Our coach had told us all week, do not get the crowd into the match. You know, don't do anything to turn them against you. Mm. So not my finest moment. I think I'm serving in the first set. Might have been serving for the set, but let's call it, you know, 5-4. I think it's, it's my ad. I hit an ace down the tee, down the middle. And my opponent calls it out. <laughs> and we're sort of stunned. I look up to the lines person. And somebody in the crowd goes, it was wide by six inches. And the lines person, you've got to hear them make note of that. And then he looks at me and he goes, no, it was, I'm, it was out. I'm going with the coal. After the yeah. serve and they, they, they call it good. I turn around and say, that's unbelievable. Then I hit the serve. They hit a low return. They popped a b- ball. Place goes absolutely bonkers. And all these Georgia fans start going, that's unbelievable. Oh. That's unbelievable. And start mocking me. <laughs> And so we end up winning in a tiebreaker that first set. Going into the the second set, we end up winning that in a tiebreaker also. So 7-6-7-6. And we're on our way to the semifinals against Southern Cal as a rematch from the prior year. They're number one in the country. They're the defending national champs. And and they basically have most of their team back from the prior year. Um, And we house them. We beat them 5-0 in singles, doesn't go to doubles. 
you might know the name Wayne Black. Yeah, yeah. Who was, I think, a former future number one in the world in doubles from Zimbabwe. And I I got to know Wayne a little bit over the years. I think he probably twice a a season would hit a ball off center. He just hit the ball in the middle of the strings all the time. He's playing our number four, Will Forsyth, and the only match Wayne Black lost that entire year was when our number four, Will, beat him in three sets, coming down from, I think, 5-2 in the third or something like that. So he wins. I end up beating the same guy who beat me at number five in three sets. I win the match 6-2, 6-2. Our number one beats Brian McPhee, who also top 100 in the world and, and doubles player and, and amazing. We win at three. I can't remember which one we didn't win at, but we were done. We, we were 5-0 and, and match was over. And now we're playing in the finals against Stanford. The week prior to the tournament, we got down there early and probably for five days, we played the most incredible wiffle ball games you could ever imagine amongst our team. <laughs> and just sort of the camaraderie and, and the team building of that. I remember we went to the same place to eat dinner after these matches. All of our parents were there. And so it, was, it wasn't just us eight players. It was the players, it was our coaches, it was our families, and we would fill up this restaurant and we just kept sort of going back. And so we get to the final and we're playing Stanford and it was just one of those matches where we never got it going. And I don't know that we were like overwhelmed by the moment or anything like that. It was probably just, um, certainly had been emotional, had been in a crazy week and, and you know, just all of emotions that go through, go into that. But they just were the better team that day. And, you know, I didn't play well. Dave lost for the only time he lost all season at, at number one. And Stanford just played a little better than we did on that particular day. I honestly believe they were probably not the best team that we played that week. Mm-hmm. And yet the way the tennis goes and the way momentum goes and the way team tennis can sort of start to spiral, we were the on the other end of the stick for the final match there. Whereas the prior three matches had had been just memories for a lifetime that we still talk about to this day. Yeah, and I mean, just such a from being a walk on to earning a scholarship to, I mean, ending your senior season with this, you know, Dan McGall Award as the top senior player. I mean, and then going on to coach the team for a little bit, man. I saw a couple years as an assistant and paying it forward in that regard and obviously after that i know you played professionally and were able to travel around and chomp the bit there but fast forwarding now to you know, here you are husband and father I, here i am with, with three kids and my son is a a junior at, at valor and i know you got a, a tennis player there at, at, at cherry creek and it just makes me think of what you've done as an athlete to now what you're doing as a parent. I got to ask, has it been more fulfilling for you to win that state championship or play in the finals of the NCAAs or watch your kids play sports, watch your son win a state championship? What has been more fulfilling for Mr. Andy? Yeah. And it's an easy answer and, and it's, it's watching your kids thrive and whether that's on the tennis court, or in fact, they, they both play. My, my sons are uh, on the JV and the varsity basketball team for Cherry Creek. So I'm anxious today to, to go watch their games. And season starts this, this evening. My oldest daughter just got back from Cambodia and Thailand, where she led a mission trip. 
That's her third kind of mission trip where she's been around the country to Central America, Africa, and, and now Asia. And to watch what she's doing and, and how she's leaning into her faith and, and following the, the, the Christian principles that we believe in and are, are, are important to us is just as rewarding. My second daughter is Sydney, who's at Baylor University, and is also very much kind of following her faith, giving back in unique ways and very involved in her church. And so it's really whatever your kids choose to be passionate about, there's nothing better than watching them pursue those passions and hopefully helping to provide some guard, guardrails and, and kind of steer, steering a little bit, but really um, athletics, as we've talked about, create this amazing right there in front of you opportunity to kind of talk about life lessons and, and things like that. But really it's anything. It doesn't have to be athletics and whether it's in band or theater or, or whatever it is that you're passionate about, you, you ask which has been maybe more inspiring. I will say what has been more challenging uh-huh. is as a parent, how do you know what to say? How do you know when to say that? How do you know when to just support? And how do you know when to maybe give them a little bit of a, a kick and, and bumping along a little bit. And, right. and that's crazy challenging stuff, but it's also crazy rewarding to, to watch them kind of become who they're going to become in, in, and the best versions of themselves. And, and you know, yes, my, my son in the semifinals of, of state tennis this year against Valor, and I, I believe you might have been there. Yep. You know, it all came down to his match at number two doubles. And, yep. and he was uh, nervous and, and he was feeling all of the kind of insecurity that, that we all feel when you're in that moment. And, and he ended up coming through and, and, and both hitting some good shots and, and helping his partner through. And, and they were a good team. And, and yeah, that's pretty special and pretty unique. And that moment will likely, you know, live with him forever. It's probably the most nervous I've ever been at a tennis match. And, and even though I recognize that whether he wins or loses doesn't define who he is as a person or who he will be or the success that he might achieve, you still just want so much the best for your kids. There's nothing quite like watching your, your children from taking their first steps to taking their first steps into the world and, and start to sort of chart their own course. And, and you hope like heck that you've done a good job of instilling in them some of the values and, and some of the characteristics that will likely increase the chances that they're going to have wonderful life. For me personally, I put a lot of that in, in the hands of of our Lord and Savior. I like to believe that that our kids are as well prepared as they can be, but mm. we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was firmly in attendance at that semifinal state match as a coach of Valor and watching your son rise to the occasion, watching our dreams, hopes and dreams shatter in that in that dual format. 17 years as a high school coach. I've not been able to figure out the team title yet. Ironically enough, the two doubles team that competed against Creek that day ended up winning the individual state championship at two doubles. Yeah. So it's just wild how that can work. But thinking with my own family, one of the greatest things that I got to experience as a dad sitting in the stands with my mouth shut and my ears open and my eyes open and watching yep. my son 
run through a year ago down in Penrose Park in Colorado Springs and watching his cross country team win a state championship. And he, he reminds me every single day that he only did cross country for two years and got a ring. And I've been doing tennis for 17 years, still don't have a <laughs> team ring, but nonetheless, to your point, from the days that I watched him take those first steps to what he's doing as a young man, as he's getting to the end of his high school career is the most gratifying. And then outside of that, my middle daughter, Addie, she's a little tennis player herself starting to play tournaments and ironically coming up against other Colorado tennis icons like uh, Corey Ross's kids and how small yeah. the world it is to where the lineage and the years it's, it's crazy for me. Cause even the match that we were talking about in the state semis against Creek. So Art Quinn is the coach and he used to coach me when I was playing at Meadow Creek to Chris Birchboff, who I used to play against when I was growing up and he was helping the team out. And here's yeah. Zerker's kid playing doubles and here's Jeff Lair's kid playing singles. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like <laughs> the lineage is just wild, but nonetheless, full circle perspective is what really makes you remarkable, Andy. And me, you know, being a man of faith is you're able to take all of these individual accolades, these moments of just extraordinary feat, and take it and bundle it into a perspective of paying it forward to help other people. So as I say that, what I would love to hear from you is from all of your experience and kind of where you want to go with helping others, what is your mission when it comes to today's youth, some gaps that we need to fill either as parents or coaches? Yeah. And how are you looking to fill those gaps to help these kids moving forward? Yeah, I appreciate that, Coleman. Before I answer that, you made a really kind of poignant point as, as you're talking about, you know, being in attendance at, at your son's cross country championship. And that is as you're there with your mouth closed, but you're ears and, and eyes open, which is that makes you very unique as a parent to be there supporting. And hopefully when you did open your mouth, it's purely words of encouragement. And, and it's purely I'm here supporting you, my child, to, to sort of achieve and to do the best that you can in this day and age. There's too much focus on the outcome and too little focus on all the good stuff that, that happens within the, the, the striving to, to reach that outcome. And, and so, and, and ironically, the more you focus on the things that will lead to a better outcome that are, that are in your control, yeah. you will have that more success if you focus on those things that, that you can't control. And, and so there's, there's too many parents and honestly too many coaches too, who put a whole lot of emphasis on winning the eight and under, you know, softball right. league championship or whatever. And unfortunately, that often comes at the expense of an opportunity to talk through the life lesson that maybe was presented there and the, the teachable moment that we skipped over because we were so focused on winning, you know, the, the league title in our eight-year-old sport. And so first off, I commend you for, for having the perspective as a parent that this is their thing. Their self-worth isn't determined by their success. 
nor is your worth as a parent determined by your child's success or not. Too often, I believe, in the last decade or so, we're heading down this path where you got to specialize in a sport so they can get a scholarship so they can be successful. All of that sort of speaks to how I would, I'm hoping to make an impact and make a difference in the lives of some of these, you know, young athletes and or just people that are sort of in that ecosystem to help them. And I've been fortunate enough to have had some pretty unique experiences. And we've talked about some of those and, you know, playing tennis around the world and, and playing professionally in, in Central America and Australia and, and Europe. And, and that just creates for me, I think a, a responsibility to some degree to help help pass a message along that is more about the things that really matter in sports. And oh, by the way, on that list, winning is pretty low. And 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 I don't. And, and let me be clear on that. And I've said this many times, but it's critical that you strive to win, and you have to have that goal. Because in the pursuit of that goal is when the important kind of lessons that ought to be amplified and discussed and, and talked about. And I've I had the, the pleasure to be on the um, State of Colorado Leadership Council for the Positive Coaching Alliance oh. for, gosh, probably five years or so now. And, and there's a guy by the name of Jeff Dale that was born out of the psychology department at Stanford. And I think in 1999 is when that was founded. And it's trying to eradicate the stories that you hear of fights in the parking lot or why do our why is there a referee shortage in high school athletics because it's not much fun to go out there and, and get yelled at for a couple hours and you get paid next to nothing it's probably and, how you fell down in Athens of, that one day right <laughs> you know exactly right i mean it's tough to be a ref- i hope to be able to work with you know, athletes and or parents and or coaches in some way to help kind of illuminate both ways to be more successful as athletes, but also ways to get the maximum benefit out of that experience that might not have anything to do with winning that particular match or that particular tournament, but rather understanding the context of trying to reach goals and and dealing with setbacks and dealing with successes and and working with others and being a leader or being a follower playing your role on the team there's so much richness to all of that that unfortunately i believe gets lost in the shuffle a little bit as as more and more parents and and kids and coaches lose sight of the many amazing benefits and and the canvas that athletics sort of provide for you to paint, to lead to successes and, and to lead to the right perspective as you're moving through the rest of your life. Because most of us, our athletics careers don't go much past high school. So most of us will spend 40 or 50 years of our lives, not in the throes of the traditional sort of athletic environment. And it's amazing how well those experiences from your youth can translate into setting you up with a strong foundation to be able to navigate the rest of your life efficiently and and effectively. Yeah. The role we just went down there, Andy, of perspective of really wisdom is what I'm going to call it is so powerful. And I think of this, this project, I got a nickname growing up, big teddy bear. When I was 14 years old, I was 
you know, just shy of six feet tall and over 300 pounds trying to learn how to play tennis. And I, wow. my nickname was, was big teddy bear. And I hated being called big teddy bear. And when I got out of college, I went on mission to be a coach. Like I never had be a positive yeah. influence, be that parent in the stands where my mouth is shut. My eyes are open and my ears are open doing that with my, my students that I help. And I turned that BTB into an open-ended question called built to be, what are you built to be? What are you built to become? And that's the first question that I ask anybody that I try to help on and off the, the tennis court yeah. and asking that question and hearing what people Great. have to say and the hope and encouragement and the excitement that comes from that question. And it kind of leads me to really your legacy and again, your, your mission as I've told you, my mission with the BTV project, if you had an opportunity to come across a, a young man that is maybe a student at Ponderosa High School and walks into the gym the way that I did when I was in high school, and they're an inspiring tennis player, and they see this banner of what had been done by you many years ago, I know that that banner was something that was an athletic accomplishment. But based off of everything you've experienced, Andy, and everything that you're looking to experience as a husband, as a father, as a mentor, I would love for you to share with the listeners, what do you want that banner to mean to an inspiring athlete as you continue to be on mission to pay the legacy forward? Yeah, gosh, that's a great question. And by the way, I love what are you built to be? Because it just re it requires the right amount of thoughtfulness and introspection and, and reflection on who am I and what do I want to do and, and what, what legacy do I want to live? And, and honestly, that's a lot of the thinking I've been doing of late has to do with exactly that. And I've got another decade or two left in my career, and I'd love that to be in some way helping make a positive impact in this ecosystem that we've been talking about. Right. If I were you know, talking to a student, I'd first want to understand what, what their goals are. What are they trying to accomplish? And then it would ultimately sort of be breaking it down to what steps can you take tomorrow that are going to help you move towards that goal, recognizing the right goal ought to be more a marathon than a sprint. Right. You're not going to get there tomorrow. And it may, you may not get there for 17 or 18 years when, when the team title sort of happens. What can you do to make a step in that direction? And, and there's so many things that are so controllable from all of us. What attitude do you want to have? I go back to the outcomes and the results as let them be outcomes and results. Focus on the things that will ultimately lead to those outcomes and results. And so, okay, let's set that goal. Let's understand what that goal is. And then let's talk through what steps need to be taken to reach that. And it's not just athletic steps. It, it, it's mindset, it's dedication, and it's being practical and intentional and setting tangible things that you can accomplish. And oh, by the way, there's no guarantee that by doing those things, you're going to get to that place. But when you set those type of goals and you do the things that you hold yourself accountable, good things will happen. It may be that you find out 
as you're halfway down the, the path towards that goal, that you had the wrong goal and there's something even better on the horizon. I haven't given that question enough thought probably, but that's where my mind goes initially is, uh, is to sort of focus on those things that you can control as you're approaching what you believe to be the goal that, that you want to tackle. And if you're doing so with the right level of thoughtfulness and, and reflection, then there's so many good things that are going to just sort of emanate from that aspect of the journey. It's hard to imagine goodness not being at the end of that path. Again, wise words, Andy. It's just remarkable what you've done as a, not just a state champion and what you've done at Notre Dame and on the tour, but more importantly, what you've done as a husband and a father and a mentor, paying it forward to, to help your own children. So from the bottom of my heart, I can't thank you enough for spending a, a blip of time on, on your radar on the BTB project. And I just look forward to seeing what uh, success you have coming on the horizon. I, I cannot thank you enough. Goldman and, and, and really appreciate what you're doing. It speaks a lot to the type of person that you are, that, that you're pursuing this and that you're able to both for yourself, but then on a, on a bigger platform, I'm the least important of all of your guests, but you've had just so many people who have interesting stories to tell and interesting perspectives. I love that you're taking that and kind of amplifying that on through your platform to, to, to others, because there's there's a lot to learn from a lot of really exceptional people and, and really special that you've had a chance to engage with so many of them. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate your support and definitely enjoy getting to watch some basketball. All right. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wise words from my conversation with Andy Zerker, truly inspirational. Listen, if Andy's story was something that impacted you, do me a favor and like and subscribe to the BTB project. Go ahead and send this episode over to a family member or friend. Tell them why it's impacted you. Let's continue to pay the mission forward. I'm proud of each and every one of you. And until next time, take care.